This was recorded live at Trinity Church in San Juan, Puerto Rico. For more information, go to trinitypr.org. Thank you, Jeff. All right, well, good morning, Trinity Church. I'm, for those of you who don't know me, I'm Pastor Ronnie Garcia, and um, we, uh, we don't often speak about money here at Trinity Church unless it just naturally comes up in the text. So what we do about two times a year is we break from our uh, sermon series to just talk about it. We just do this about two times a year. And um, if, if you're a, like, part of me wants to cringe, right? If you're a visitor or you're just tuning in for the first time, part of me wants to be a little bit embarrassed, like, great, of course, you come visiting on this Sunday. We're talking about Monday, money. You're thinking to yourself, yeah, that's how this guy pays his light bill. He's highly motivated to talk about this kind of stuff. Um, I'm, I'm tempted to do that, but I don't want to. Uh, I don't want to apologize for it because I actually think that how Christians think about money is beautiful. And in fact, if you're just exploring Christianity and, and you're, you're not even sure what you believe, listening on this, listening into this conversation might actually be what just convinces you that the gospel is true and that it's beautiful and that it's compelling. So that's what that's why I'm so excited about talking about this to, this morning. Now, it's important that we do focus on this because money, or, or more specifically greed, it's peculiar in that it poses a real threat to our flourishing in ways that others' sins do not, right? This is actually Jesus' favorite subject. If you just read the Gospels, right, he talks about this way more than he talks about heaven or hell or sex or uh, prayer even. He talks about this way more. It's because he knows that money has a way of disfiguring you in a way without you even realizing that it's the cause, right? It's kind of like carbon monoxide. You know, your home can be filling up with carbon monoxide, but it's odorless and tasteless, and it can make you sick and even kill you. And so you could just be breathing it in without even knowing it. Now, with carbon monoxide, we know the stakes, right? And we know what to do, right? We buy a carbon monoxide detector, and we just listen for the alarm. And the carbon monoxide detector helps us to know that we're safe from the threat. But what's at stake with our money? Being sick with greed is insidious, and it can make us spiritually sick. And people in the grip of greed can't taste it or smell it or see it, you see. But God gives us an alarm. He gives us a detector. And what is that detector? In the Christian tradition, it's this practice, this spiritual discipline we call tithing. Now, tithing just, it literally means 10%. It's the idea that the first 10% of income that God provides for his people is designated for special use for the worshiping life of God's people and also for the mercy ministry in which God's, in the area in which God's people reside. Now, Christians believe that 100% of what we have belongs to the Lord in an ordinary way, 100% of it. But we know that 10% of what we have 
belongs to the Lord in a special way. Now, I'm not going to get into all the details of tithing today. That's not actually what this is about. I mean, I'm not going to answer questions like, is tithing a New Testament thing? Because it's really only talked about in the Old Testament, or is it, is it before taxes, or is it after taxes? Is it even 10%? I'm not even going to talk about that. But what I like about this as a measuring apparatus, as a number, is that it forces you to ask yourself, what do I believe? Like, I, regardless of whether or not you agree with me, what do you believe the Bible teaches? And do you live up to your own standards of generosity? It's not like, what do you theoretically believe about money? When you measure, when you use this apparatus and you start cranking out numbers, what does your life actually show what you believe? Like, what does it show? Measure it and see if the detector, if the alarm starts sounding off. Now, this is not to cause you shame or guilt, right? That's not what I'm after here. If you hear the alarm, you're supposed to feel safe. Now, if you hear the alarm going off and you put it in the dresser, right, then it could be fatal. But if you hear it, you're fine. You just need to take steps to fix it, right? Now, today, again, it's not about tithing. Really, what I want to talk about is the virtue of generosity. Because I long for something in my heart. I long for something in the hearts of my children. I long for something in your heart that is far, far deeper than just dutifully writing a check. Right? We, I am absolutely convinced that if we all just dutifully wrote a check, we'd be able to fa- afford that $3 million gorgeous building where we could really bless and have an awesome children's ministry, and we would all go to church and we'd fill up the building, but our hearts would still not be generous. Still. See, God is interested in something far more deep than duty. He's actually interested in your identity, And I want us to rest so deeply in the generosity of God that it makes us more like him. The difficulty is, is that we won't fix what we don't think is broken, right? So many people, right, they already think they're generous. They stopped listening. Maybe you've already decided you're not going to listen to the sermon today because it's an awkward one, right? But the thing about it is, is this conversation of tithing, this measuring apparatus, It can call our bluff. It can show us what we functionally trust trust in. It can alert us to the reality that maybe we're not who we think we are. Again, this is not an occasion for shame or guilt. It's actually a place of hope. Whether you've been a Christian for one day or whether you've been a Christian for a hundred years, don't we all just recognize that there's things in us where we want to change, we want to be something more than what we are, something that we were meant for something better. Now, if, as I've even been speaking in this introduction, you're doing some, you're doing some mental math and you're like, dang it, I am not a generous person. How do I become the person I long to be, who I was meant to be? Well, It's that these practices, these spiritual practices, like generosity, it shapes us and it forms us and it can transform us in really lasting ways. Well, here's the reality, and listen closely. Generosity 
does not primarily come from managing what belongs to us. Let me say that again. Generosity does not come primarily from managing what belongs to us. It comes from experiencing and knowing who we belong to. So this morning, we're going to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 8, and we're going to read this passage, and we're going to mine it for kind of two ideas. First, our identity, or maybe our misplaced identity and a vision of scarcity. And then we are going to look at God's identity and a vision of abundance. All right, with that introduction, would you stand with me? We're going to reverently give ourselves to God's word, Deuteronomy chapter 8, beginning in verse 11. Hear now the word of God. Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today, lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who, fled, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know that he might humble you and test you to do good in the end. Beware lest you say in your heart, my power And the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. And if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish Like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, so shall you perish, because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever. May he bless it for me and you. Amen. You may be seated. Let's kind of begin with this first point, this idea of our misplaced identity and vision of scarcity. I don't know if you know the name, uh, Nicholas Kristof. He's, uh, he's kind of like this left-leaning journalist, highly accomplished, two Pulitzer Prizes that he's won. He's not a Christian. He's not a Christian. But about 10 years ago, he wrote an op-ed piece for the New York Times. And he asked this question. He says, which person would you rather be? Case A, Richard Richard is an ambitious 36-year-old white commodities trader in Florida. He's healthy and drop-dead handsome. He lives alone in a house with a pool, has worked his way through a series of gorgeous women. Richard's job is stressful, but he did spend Christmas in Tahiti. He enjoys reading, marathon running, and writing poetry. In the last few days, he's been composing an elegy about the Haiti earthquake. All right, case B. Or two, Lorna. Lorna is a 64-year-old black woman in Boston. She's overweight and unattractive, even after a recent nose job. Lorna is on regular dialysis, but that doesn't impede her social life or babysitting her grandchildren. A retired school assistant, 
She's really close to her 67-year-old husband. She's much respected in her church for directing the music committee and the semi-annual blood drive. Lorna believes in tithing. In the last few days, she has organized a church drive to raise $10,000 for earthquake relief in Haiti. So Nicholas Kristof, right, just says, all right, who, who would you rather be? And his point is, while most of us, if we were forced to choose, might prefer to trade places with Richard, Lordna is actually happier. Now, how did he get that? Well, Christoph is actually borrowing from this other social psychologist, another non-Christian, a professor at NYU, who looks at indicators of happiness, right? And, 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 the, and what he found is, it, the question is, what advantage does Lordna have over Richard? And the main indicator in this case is that she has a life generously, even sacrificially poured out for others. You, you don't even have to be a Christian to come to this conclusion, right? Now, I use this as an example because it's so counterintuitive to our senses. I mean, wouldn't even Lordna want to trade places with Richard, right? And the answer is this resounding no. Why? What is it that Lordna understands about herself, about God, and about the world that gives her this happy life that she's living? And the key here is that Lordna believes that God has graciously and even generously given her, or at least has at his fingertips, everything that she needs to flourish in abundance. While Richard, when he looks at the world, he understands, the filter he uses, that everything he has earned exactly what he, ha he himself has worked for. He has earned everything that he has worked for. Now, I bring this phenomena, this, this reality to your attention, because it actually helps us interpret what's happening in our text with Israel. So remember the context. Israel had come out of Egypt. They'd spent 40 years in the wilderness. That period in the wilderness was a time that God provided for them, although the land was actually quite barren, but they had everything they needed. And it was a test. That time in the wilderness was a test to ensure that they were crystal clear, absolutely certain that God was their provider. But now Israel was right about, they were just about to go into the promised land. And the promised land is the polar opposite of the wilderness. The promised land is rich with resources. But that time would also be a test. When they get there, who will they understand their provider to be? Who will they understand their provider? And so God is, is saying to Israel, remember who you are. Because if you don't, picks up there in verse 12, look there in your text, lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them and, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart will be lifted up. In other words, it'll, it'll get arrogant. And you forget the Lord your God. It's insidious. You don't even know what's happened. It's tasteless and odorless. The summary statement of this is in verse 17. Look there in your text. Beware lest you say in your heart, 
my power and the might of my hand have given me this wealth. You see what's happening there? See, in the wilderness, it was super clear that God was their provider and that they would absolutely die without his care and provision. But in the promised land, there's this insidious trick. They start thinking, you know what? I did this. I am my provider. I am rich because I did this. <laughs> Let me make this explicit. If you understand yourself to be your own provider, then you fundamentally see the world through the lens of scarcity. Because as we begin to experience abundance, there's kind of two realities that emerge. First, we can no longer see that what we have is abundance, right? Once we get into our socioeconomic strata, we move into the neighborhoods of our peers, we uh, send our children to the schools of our peers, right? We socialize at the club with our peers, and we compare ourselves not to reality. We compare ourselves to our peers, and we all say, you know what? I live modestly compared to others. I'm, I'm right in the middle. I'm, I'm not excessive. I don't have abundance. That doesn't describe me. I just live into my socioeconomic level. And we, we all feel average. And we would never say, I am absurdly wealthy. Right? We don't speak like that because we don't believe that we are. So let me just say it for all of us to hear. We are all absurdly wealthy, including the pastor preaching the stinking sermon. God has given us abundance, but it's hard to see it. It's hard to see it's insidious. Now, the second reality to emerge is just like Israel, who went into the promised land and used the lush land to build their wealth and then, and then thus see their wealth as something that they provided for themselves, we tend to look at our own wealth as the product of our own effort, the work of our hands, the work of our, uh, the, the, the fruit of our work. And as we experience God's abundance, we say, I did it. I built this house. No, literally, I'm a builder. I'm a contractor. I built this house. I did it, right? Or I worked hard in school. It was my business savvy, my negotiations, my networking that brought me these opportunities. I hit the pavement, right? I'm an educated person with opportunities because I worked hard in school. I am my own provider, The problem is, is that logic, that internal logic doesn't square with the Bible at all. It never allows us to talk like that. An Old Testament theologian, Christopher Wright, and this was the reflection in your bulletin, he says this. He says, all human strength, gifts, abilities, and life itself, along with the material resources out of which the wealth has been created, are the gift of God. We are as little the makers of our own strength as we are the makers of the earth. This is the first principle of biblical economics. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, but he has given it to the human race for our use. He's given us even opportunities and even our work ethic. I mean, you weren't born in Madagascar in the 1600s, were you? 
Now listen carefully to the risk. When you say, and we don't even talk like this, but we believe it in our hearts. When you say, I did it, I did it, what you're doing is you're attaching your identity to your wealth and accomplishment. Your wealth and abundance in some ways are an affirmation of your worth, right? It it validates you. It says, listen, the world is scarce, but against all the odds, I did it. And that feels really good when things are going as planned. But what happens when the abundance is in jeopardy or when you're called to give deep into your abundance? Not only then, in that case, is your wealth in jeopardy, but your identity is at stake. And so what do you do? Well, if you live in scarcity, you hide it and you fight for it, and you violate the dignity of others. Maybe it's your family by working too hard, or or maybe it's your employees. They get the short end of the stick because you got to make sure that you don't lose it. And if you do lose it, you absolutely despair. I mean, a deep despair, because who are you even if you don't have your money? You don't even know who you are without your money telling you who you are and the club's giving you identity, you see? All right, why am I saying all of these painful things? (laughs) It's how we relate to our wealth reaches deep into who we see ourselves and God, you see. Therefore, generosity is not just a practice. It's how we understand our place in this world. It's how we understand who we belong to. Right, you're saying, ouch, stop it, Roddy, I'll write the check. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not even there yet. I'm not even talking about that. See, generosity does not come from managing our stuff better. Generosity comes from knowing and experiencing with certainty who you belong to. That's got to be first. Right now, I'm just asking. All I'm asking you to do right now is, are you listening to the detector? Is the alarm going off? And would you even have enough courage to be honest if it were? Would you? Would I? If your detector is going off, I don't want you to feel guilty. I want you to feel safe. It's there for you to protect you. What it means is God is graciously, because he loves you, reorienting your identity to him because you had a misplaced identity and generosity helps us to do that all right this moves me to the second part so first we looked at our misplaced identity and a, a lens or vision of scarcity and now it's kind of this different side of the same coin we're gonna look at god's identity and a vision of abundance all right oh we're doing our, we're doing okay so far all right uncomfortable sermon um so I have a friend, um, his name's David, born and raised in California, goes to college in California, but his freshman year at the university, his family moves from California to Pennsylvania, so he can't, um, he can't, like, it's just too short of a time, and he's, you know, a poor college student, he didn't want to f- 
fly across the country for Thanksgiving. So he decides to just stay in California for Thanksgiving, and he asks a few friends if he can hang with them. So one of his friends invites him to Thanksgiving lunch to spend it with his family. So David is um, driving to his friend's house with his friend, and his friend begins to give him this pep talk, maybe a little preparation. And he says, hey, listen, um, my dad grew up really poor, worked really hard for everything he has, and um, he's a man of, of great means now. But as a result, my dad is kind of gruff. Like, those were the words he used. He's kind of gruff. And so when we're enjoying Thanksgiving lunch... Just don't ask for seconds. Just don't ask for seconds. Now, that's kind of a weird thing to say. He's like, but, you know, David's an 18-year-old, and he's not kind of reading the social signals there. He's like, okay, whatever, and just kind of press on. So there they are, enjoying Thanksgiving lunch at his family's, and he's like, first home, home-cooked meal in a while. Like, this isn't cafeteria food. He's pumped. He's a skinny kid just throwing it down. And he gets up and goes for seconds. And the whole family notices. And David describes, he says, a cloud descended. He broke the family taboo. And in the silence, the awkward, nervous silence, the dad makes this kind of cutting remark about David being too hungry or something, as if to say, this isn't, this isn't your place. This isn't your food. How dare you eat more of our food, you know? It was so uncomfortable, so uncomfortable. Just cut really deep into this young kid's heart. The rest of this short visit was odd, and it really, David says, it made him feel really insecure in a way that he wasn't right prior to that comment. Really insecure and nervous. That being in that home sucked the life out of him. It made him doubt his own value. Now, thankfully, my friend David wasn't spending the break at that house, just the lunch. He's actually spending the rest of the Thanksgiving vacation with, at his other house with another friend. And now this family was the exact polar opposite. At that family, when he arrives, the dad is meeting him at the door saying, Man, welcome to your home. This is your home. I mean, there's, there's nothing off limits. Go to the refrigerator, grab whatever you want. If you see something in the cupboard, you go for it. We're just glad that you're here. You just enjoy it. Here's your room. And if you need anything, just please, you are one of us. Anything you want. And he says, listen, at, at, at night, all the family, we kind of gather in the living room. And we would just love for you to be a part of that and to join us. And just be a part of everything that we're doing. Now, in this case, the father is pulling, right, is pulling David into the abundance of the family, right? Can you see that? How do you think this made David feel? He went from being insecure, not awkward, to secure, alive, connected. I mean, this house made this 18-year-old kid feel kinder. It actually made him a more hospitable person himself, right? He went from wanting to run away to wanting to be included. The first house was characterized by scarcity, and the other, of abundance. Do you see how the house shapes the people in it? Can you see that? This is why it's so important for us to have a correct vision of God's abundant care for us. See, in our passage in Deuteronomy, we're invited to see clearly that God just 
unrelentingly provides and is abundant, both in the promised land, but even in the wilderness, right? Speaking of God, Moses says, picks up there in verse 14, look back in your Bibles. He's, he's talking about God. He says, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers didn't even know about, that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. God was always the provider. Why? Because everything is his. And in time, that, that provision and that, that, that dependence on him and God pulling through was, was meant to humble. But that humbling is in order, what does it say there at the end of verse 16? To do you good in the end. That means to help you to become who you were meant to be, who you long to be. And the idea is, if God is truly our provider, if the world is truly abundant, then we are free to be imitators of God and to be generous. And in fact, this idea is further clarified in verse 18. Look there in verse 18. He says, you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth. He gives you both the wealth and even the power to make wealth. And if that's true, if, if it's God who's doing both of those things, then you are connected to an infinite supply that will never run out. And that what you need, perfect, what you need to perfectly flourish in this life will never run out, no matter how generous you are. Like, you just won't run out. See, generosity is not just a practice. It's a way to understand the world. Especially to understand who you belong to. You see that? Can you see that connection there? Now, I keep repeating this idea because if I'm right, if our, genero if our generosity is a way to understand who we belong to, then two things follow. One, giving is not simply about stewardship or management of resources, but it's actually about communion. <laughs> it's about communing with the one true, real God. God is not simply, or excuse me, giving is not simply instrumental for getting something done, okay? Listen, like, of course Trinity is going to feed the hungry generously. Of course we want to have our own building where we can be real hospitable to our community, invite them in and give ourselves away. Of, of course we want to continue to work alongside schools and the educators and, and to be generous with them, to redeem the educational system here in Puerto Rico. Of course, but those things are actually secondary. Giving is not functional. It is relational. That's why at the very end of this pa passage in verse 20, there's this really peculiar warning. Look there at verse 20. He says, like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, so you shall perish because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. You see that? They would not obey the voice, the voice of God. That's code speak for they broke friendship. They broke communion. 
They broke fellowship, right? That's, see, in the, it's in the context of a meaningful relationship that we hear the voice of one another. To hear the voice of the other means that you are communing with them. You see that? And so giving is the act of redirecting God's wealth for the larger good of communion with God. That's different than just functional. Y'all see that? Y'all remember that woman who kind of breaks into the dinner party where that the Pharisees were hosting, falls at the feet of Jesus, gets like really expensive perfume and, and oil, and just pours it all out on Jesus, right? Well, what's she after? To smell good? No, she wants communion with Jesus. Remember the women who took Jesus' dead body and, and anointed it with fine oils and spices for, for burial? Well, what were they after? Remember when Jesus has that real short conversation with the boy who had the two fish and the five, lo- five loaves? Right? What were those resources about? Just a meal? No. It was about communion with Christ. It's about communion. Do you know why the early church, and this is so well documented in history, why the early church absolutely outgave the Roman Empire? I mean, they didn't just take care of their own poor. They took care of everyone's poor. Why? Why did they do that? Was it duty? They wanted communion with God who they knew resurrected. Redirecting the abundance of God meant enjoying the abundance of relationship with the one true God. And it means that for us. God demands our generosity not because he needs our money, but because he loves you. Because he loves you. He wants communion with you. Y'all see that? That's different, isn't it? All right. Allow me to finish with just one final thought. I just want to be real clear. I want more for us, for myself, for my own family, more than just dutiful giving. I want us to know with certainty that we belong to a generous God. But we have to deal with our misplaced identity and this vision of scarcity, and we have to trust in God's identity and this vision of abundance. And if when you plug in the detector of giving, this tithing apparatus, and the alarm sounds, and the detector is calling our bluff, and we are not who we think we are, don't feel guilty. Feel safe. Feel safe. But act on it with sacrificial generosity, a kind of generosity that requires faith, you know, kind of leans into your faith so that you know who you belong to what vision of the world is true. And this giving and tithing 
It's not some work for us to do. You, you can't get credit for this. We're not saved by our generosity. None of that should motivate our giving, right? When, when we became Christians through the death of Jesus Christ, he, he gives us forgiveness, right? And that's all grace. We didn't earn that. And more than forgiveness, he doesn't just take away our debt, but he kind of fills up our account. It's just, he just fills it up with infinite amount. He gives us this inheritance, he gives us full acceptance, and none of that can ever be taken away, right? But now, through that same grace, he's giving us the dignity to become who we were destined to be. See, God is more committed to your transformation than you are. One day in heaven, you will not be greedy. He's going to deal with you. He's going to deal with me. He's going to fix us. He's going to make sure it happens whether or not you do it or not. But we have the dignity to, to participate and to pull that future reality into our present just a little bit and really step into who we want to become, who we want our children to become. And so today we can imitate Christ and freely and sacrificially give ourselves away because God is a God who gave himself away. Jesus, your Savior, as he hung on the cross, he didn't just give you 10% of his blood. He gave all of himself to you because he loves you and wants communion with you. May this just enchant our hearts until we step into a life of generosity. Amen. Amen. Let me just pray.